from a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Laura Lippman is the author of six New York Times bestselling novels, an award-winning short story anthology, and the creator of the private investigator Tess Monahan. Laura Lippman was a reporter for 20 years before turning to novel writing full-time. Her most recent book is Wild Lake. She will be a featured author at the Thurber House on May 4th. Welcome to Craft, Laura Lippman. Thank you for having me. Well, we're uh, certainly looking forward to you coming to talk at the Thurber House. Tell me about your novel, Wild Lake, and its uh, protagonist, Lou Brandt, a newly elected state's attorney uh, who has events from the past return to intrude into her present career. Wild Lake is a novel that is set in the town and the neighborhood, the suburb where I went to high school, Columbia, Maryland, in the so-called village of Wild Lake, where there is a Wild Lake, and there's also Wild Lake High School. And it came about when I began thinking at great length about what a lot of people describe as rape culture. I don't actually know what that term means, but there came a period of time starting about two, three years ago when I found myself reading about a lot of cases throughout the United States. Um, I was reading the work of Gwen Florio from Missoula, although it was years later before I put it together that that was also the very fine mystery writer, Gwen Florio. I hadn't made that connection. Um, but she was the person who wrote some of the um, groundbreaking stories out of Missoula that involved accusations against members of the football team at the university. And after a lot of sort of inward examination, I realized that as liberal as I thought I was, as progressive as I thought I was, that I probably had some pretty archaic ideas about sexual assault and rape and that I was going to go forward with the idea that whenever anyone says he or she, he or she was sexually assaulted, I'm going to start from a place of belief. And at the time I made that decision, I would say I'm not doing this as a juror or a journalist or even a law officer. I'm doing this as a human. And to me, it feels like the right and compassionate thing to do. I've since found out that it actually is a standard that is now being used in law enforcement. And as I thought about this, as I thought about the implication of beginning with belief, being open as we are always open to being told that our ideas are wrong, but starting with the idea that this is not, and factually, statistically, it is not something that people lie about very often. You know, if you think, if you carry that idea through, then how do you think about the story told in To Kill a Mockingbird? Mm-hmm. Now, to be very clear, I know that in To Kill a Mockingbird, Tom Robinson is innocent. Harper Lee set out to tell a very specific story about a time and place. And I always say the place is the United States, not the South, the United States, um, it was pretty racist region to region. The South didn't hold a monopoly on it. But it was very important to the, to the events, to the themes, to the ideas in To Kill Mockingbird that we understand that, yes, of course, Tom Robinson is innocent and it, and it can never be believed. Right. Because that is the problem of that time. 
But what if we move this story to a different time where good people, people who feel themselves to be progressive and liberal, people who think that they have reached real breakthroughs in terms of how they think about race and gender, what if we move the story to that time and place? And looking at the current day, looking at the recent past, I really felt that Columbia, Maryland, which I knew so well in the late 1970s into 1980, which I also knew well, was the perfect place to, to tell that story of what happens when a handsome, charismatic, intelligent, popular young African-American man is accused of rape by a girl, for want of a better term, from the wrong side of the tracks, who has a very good reason to try to hurt him, to try to ruin his life. When you were writing this book, did you return to this area to do more research on it to see how things had changed and if you were representing them or was it wholly from uh, memory that you were refilling in all the ideas from the late 1970s? I absolutely went back to Columbia. It was interesting. You know, I always hold the line that I am a fiction writer. I get to make things up. One of the things I made up in Wild Lake was that just sort of for reasons of grandiosity, I wanted Lou Brandt to be the first ever female state's attorney of Howard County. That's not factually correct. I don't worry about that, although I acknowledge it so people, you know, understand I'm not trying to take away from the woman who holds that real title. So some things matter to me and some things don't. Um, The geography mattered to me very much. I mean, one of the things that I researched, and I don't know why this is so crucial to me, but there's a scene in the past where Lou attempts to ambush a schoolmate. Um, taking advantage of these paths that wind through green space in Columbia. Columbia was designed to have lots of open space, lots of bike paths. And I had this memory that there was one that passed through a tunnel, and that would be a good place to try to jump somebody. And I went back one day, and I walked all over the paths, and I realized, okay, if this is where this takes place, then the place where I had wanted her her intended target to live has to be different. I have to move it because he wouldn't be walking on this path on his way home from this elementary school. So I would do some things like that. Um, I also would use a Facebook page called You Know You Lived in Columbia When. Mm -hmm. And I would sometimes take research questions directly to people and say, you know, people in, in Maryland, people tend to know who I am. So you know, if I went to that page and say, look, I'm doing research for a crime novel set in Columbia, you know, people had a lot of faith in me that, you know, I was responsible and ethical, and I would use that. And then sometimes it'd be like, no, you know, I'm going to make stuff up. The story of the house that the Brants live in is utterly manufactured. Their street is made up. I don't even think I'd give it a name because it would be impossible for any novelist to come up with more creative names than Columbia has for its streets. <laughs> so now that you're you're done with the novel, um, have you sent it to people in Columbia? Do you have they responded to it? it? It's making its way out into the world, and I've heard back. I I remember one person on social media saying, "I am 
surprised by how well Laura Lippman knows Howard County. <laughs> and I thought, well, gee, I did go to high school there. And, and the funny thing, too, is that my relationship with Howard County in Columbia continued into adulthood because it's where my stepson grew up. And I was in Columbia all the time going to, you know, basketball games and soccer games and school concerts. So I had a pretty good view of how it had changed. And, you know, look, everyone gets stuff wrong. And, of course, the, the great paradox is we, we're never more likely to get something wrong than when we're sure we're right. Mm-hmm. But I... I did as well as I could by Columbia. I really wanted to represent it as it is today. You know, as it is today, the places where the Brant family lives, they would be an unusual family in that neighborhood because the money has moved west and people who are able to afford the bigger, fancier houses, houses which in some ways really violate the founding principles of Columbia. I mean, Jim Rouse had very definite ideas about what he wanted Columbia to be like. But yeah, there, you know, people talk about the so-called inner villages. And there is crime in Columbia, sometimes quite violent crime. And, you know, I think, you know, I tried to get all of that right. I have less nostalgia for Columbia than some of my um, peers. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's because I came in when I was 15 and I left when I was 18 and I was just a little more skeptical about how successful it was at erasing differences in terms of race and class, which is not a knock on Columbia. That's really hard to do. Right. And Columbia earnestly wanted to do it, but it, you know, it's just, it's just not that easy. You've also got a book, uh, a novel, Every Secret Thing, that was turned into a movie. And it strikes me that the experience of watching that movie might be sort of parallel to somebody from Columbia reading this book and and seeing it filtered through someone else's eyes. So I'm curious about your experience watching the movie of your novel. What was uh, that like? I was so lucky in terms of my experience in, in being adapted my book was optioned by the actor Fran McDormand. Initially, I think she had hoped to play a part in the movie, but it, it took a decade to get it to screen. She was a producer. I could not have had a better producer. I could not have had a better screenwriter, better director, better actors. When I watched the film, anything that I didn't like was from the source material. Because, you know, now think about it, I'm looking at a story that I wrote over 10 years ago, and I thought, oh, I could have done better by that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of what they did with it, I felt so honored and so respected. And I, I was pretty much hands-off. I visited set once. I didn't try to have any say over the screenplay. You know, there were some changes made that I thought, that's kind of a funny change, but I get why they're doing it. I understand why they're doing what they do. A character was dropped, and I didn't even miss her. And I thought, well, if I don't miss her, I don't know who's going to. <laughs> and in the end, the funny experience for me watching that was I sat there, and it was almost as if someone else had written it, because I'm sitting there, and even though I know how it ends, I thought, this is incredibly sad 
and dark and gloomy. And I did not realize until I saw my work cinematically just how dark my work can be. I know I'm not the happiest writer. And then I, I mean, I think Wild Lake is, is kind of sad. You know, it, it's not tragic. Well, maybe it is even tragic. I mean, you could almost argue that there are characters in Wild Lake who have tragic flaws in the Shakespearean sense. But I don't, it, it surprises me again and again how sad my stories are because I don't think of myself as a sad person. I actually am kind of happy and silly and I have a young daughter and I have a lovely life. But when I sit down to write, the stories that interest me are about the mistakes that people make. I, I'm really interested in what a thin line separates happy and sad people, I guess mm-hmm. I should say. How the best of intentions can go horribly awry. You know, I want my stories to resonate with people who perhaps when they read the newspaper, they can't imagine that anything bad would ever happen to them. I just had this moment today where I was thinking about someone close to my family who had some really terrible luck. And, you know, there's this human desire to argue with yourself. That would never happen to me because but there's actually no real reason something terrible can't happen to anyone at any time. And isn't that cheerful? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think it's realistic, um, but it's interesting to me that your writing is one way and you live in a different way, which is probably a, a healthier way, right? I mean, optimists live longer, uh, or is that pessimists and it just feels like they live longer? I'm not really sure. But the... Uh, <laughs> idea of of having that sort of bifurcation that two-way view is that something that you know your family or other people who know you well have commented on and said gosh you're really different when you come out of the room uh when you're writing and you seem so unusual to me i think almost all people who work in crime fiction which is a vast majority of my friends have a similar nature and if anything they seem to see all that working out the darkness on the page allows them to be a little sunnier and cheerier in real life. You've gotten, you've gotten a lot of your angst out. You've, you've found this really great vehicle for it. And my husband, who as a television writer, explores some pretty gloomy topics at times, although he has made at least one, I think, truly jo- joyful show, um, he, of course, he understands it perfectly. You know, mm-hmm. he, you know, he also understands what it's like to write about very dark, depressing things, and then, you know, come back to the family dinner table and just be happy to be with the people you love, enjoying a nice meal. Mm-hmm. Well, Laura Littman, uh, I thank you so much for talking to me and, and talking up your novel, Wild Lake, which will be a joyful experience in the crime fiction sense uh, of a good crime uh, that is uh, handled suspensefully on the page. And we can look at it like that. Uh, sort of, I'm trying to put a nice, happy spin on the I, end. I like it. That's a good spin. I'm going to have to remember that. You're welcome to use it. It's the happiest crime novel uh, in which uh, Shakespearean tragedy occurs that you'll read this year. <laughs> so thank you very much, Laura Lippman. We're certainly looking forward to seeing you on May 4th at the Thurber House. Oh, I can't wait to get to Columbus. Thank you so much. For more information from my guests, visit www.craftthashow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.